Well, we're going to have a, a Bible reading just now. In fact, we're going to read two parts of the Bible. We're going to read from Mark chapter 15 and uh, the account of uh, Jesus' death. Uh, Mark chapter 15, we'll read from verse 22. They brought Jesus, so Mark 15, 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He said, they said he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he is calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Then a second reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to read a, a little about what was going on at the cross. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us these readings from his word. We're going to think for a while about this theme of the death of Jesus. And we've been working our way through the big story of the Bible. And last week, we got to a very significant point where uh, the king that we'd been waiting for uh, arrived. We've been doing this, if you like, for eight weeks. And right at the beginning of the story, uh, the human story, God had promised that he would 
uh, send one who would crush the serpent's head. King would come, and now Jesus, this king, has uh, arrived. And if we were hearing the story for the first time, uh, we might expect that what would happen next would be some sort of great battle. He would defeat his enemies and uh, defeat the devil, and that would be the end of the story. But it's not quite like that. He, he does win a marvelous victory, but not in the way that we expect. Because today, we are looking at the fact that the king dies. We're looking at the cross. The cross, of course, has become Christianity symbol. It might strike us on, uh, as unusual because it, it is a, a symbol that, that uh, certainly in the ancient world represented torture and death. In some ways, it was a sort of an equivalent of an electric chair, and yet it has become the symbol of Christianity. Not, not an open book to say that we're the people of the book, <clears throat> not a, a towel to say that we follow one who came to wash his disciples' feet and to serve, or not anything that marks any of his miracles, we, we, we have that symbol as the cross. And, and it shows us, of course, that Jesus' death is central. It's interesting just even on that video to say that the, the team spoke to Shahina about Jesus' death and resurrection, because this is what is absolutely critical that we understand if we're to understand Christianity. And, and so, it, it is appropriate, of course, because it is right at the heart of what Jesus came to do. And if you think even of the structure of the Gospels, we, we read uh, from Mark chapter 15, and uh, Mark has 16 chapters. Uh, usually, if you're going to write a biography about someone, you might have a chapter on, on their birth. You might have a, a few uh, chapters about how they grew up and so on. Th th there would then be uh, the, the bulk of the, the story about their achievements, whether it was in football or on the stage or whatever it might have been. And then there might be a chapter about the waning of their career and their old age and perhaps their death if it was someone who was no longer with us. But with Jesus, the vast bulk of what we find revolves around the time of his death and resurrection. And it's saying that, that this is, as it were, Jesus' career. This is what he came to do. And so, as we look at the, the cross today, we're recognizing that we're looking at what is absolutely central to the Christian story. Now, what makes the cross so important is what happens there. It's what it achieves. And there are some people who, who uh, you, you might be aware, want to suggest that the cross doesn't really achieve anything. They say it doesn't really do anything. It's some sort of demonstration just of the love of God. It's designed to inspire us and to show us, as it were, how far God's prepared to go as He says that He loves us. But that's not just the case. And, and if you think about it, it's a, a fairly foolish position to take. It would be rather like some sort of rather deluded boyfriend with a girl that he was really trying to impress and going to a cliff edge and saying, do you want to know how much I love you? And he throws himself off the cliff. Well, it's a fairly short-sighted strategy, isn't it? it? It doesn't actually do anything. But the whole point of the cross is that it does do something. It changes things. Something happens there. And the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark as to what happens there. It tells us. Now, this is a really massive subject, and there are all sorts of ways that we could come at it today, but, but today we want to just simply say this. We're going to have a, a short statement. 
that we're going to unpack a little bit, and it's this. Jesus takes our place. It's uh, on the screen. Jesus takes our place, propitiates God. We need to think about that a little, and redeems us. So, as we're thinking about the cross, here's one way of looking at it. Jesus takes our place, propitiates God, and redeems us. So, first of all, Jesus takes our place. In our kids' ministry just now, this is the big theme. They are looking at things being swapped and one person standing in for another. And so, if you're talking about this round the, the, the dinner table, you can talk about substitutes and if they've ever been on the football field or the netball team and they've gone off and somebody else has come on in their place and so on. We're, go we're, we're going to sing at the end of the service, Man of Sorrows. And in that hymn, there is that great verse, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. And the passage that we read a few moments ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 has the most remarkable statement about Jesus taking our place. This is what it says, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let's think about that. How, how, how does this describe Jesus? He who had no sin. Who are we? Well, we know that we are those with sin. We're, we're sinners and therefore we are unrighteous in God's sight. We're not, we're not right in ourselves. We're not right with Him. So, what happens at the cross? Well, Jesus becomes our substitute. Because of our sin, we deserve death, and yet He stands in for us so that what is true of us is carried by Him. Our sin becomes His. In my place condemned. He stood. He carries my unrighteousness, your unrighteousness. And, and what happens? So, so, so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. We get Jesus. This great exchange happens. We get Jesus right standing. Our sin goes to Him. His righteousness comes to us. So, sometimes we do call this verse the, the great exchange, and so it is. It, what a result that is for us. Jesus stands in for us, takes our sin, we get his righteousness. Now, some of us might be new to Christianity, some of us who are here or some of us who are listening, and we might be trying to work all of this out and, and see how does this apply to us. And one of the things that people sometimes wonder is, is how can believers like Shaheen say that I'm confident of my salvation? How, how come, can Christians talk about the future knowing that they will be accepted by God? How will they know that they have a welcome from God? Because what lots of people think is, surely they, they, they might mess up tomorrow or the next day. And of course we will. We will sin. But how can we look forward with confidence if that's the case? How can Romans 1, uh, Romans 8 verse 1 say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, it's because Jesus is taking our place. What is ours because it becomes His, so He takes all of our sin, not only yesterday's sin, but today's sin and tomorrow's sin. Jesus pays it all. That's really important for us to understand. 
And then his righteousness becomes ours, his right standing, and that's not going to change. So yes, I will sin tomorrow, but the righteousness of Christ is perfect and unchanging and will still be mine tomorrow. That's not to make me complacent, of course. So much more we can say about that. But that won't change. So, so we know that our, our school children have been shifted a little bit more from exams to continual assessment. And if you think of your life as some sort of great continual assessment, and the marks are only going to be totted up and revealed at the end of your life, then you can have no confidence you, can't, you just can't have. But what has happened at the cross is that Jesus' grades have been transferred to you and to me. His perfect result is mine. So rather than think, I'm waiting for a verdict on my life, the final verdict has already been given. And that's the verdict that is over Jesus' life, right. So a believer is able to look forward with confidence. And so we ought to be the most confident and, and peaceful and contented people on earth because we know that the one verdict that really, really matters has been given to us if we're Christians. And that's all because Jesus takes our place. So that's the first thing. As we think about the cross, what happens there? Jesus takes our place. What is ours becomes his. What is his becomes ours. Jesus takes our place, and then this second little phrase, and propitiates God. Propitiates God. Now, now this is a new word for many of us, I'm sure. Propitiation is, involves a sacrifice which turns aside the wrath of God. It's a word that, that might or might not occur in our Bibles, depending on the translations we use. It was used in the old authorized version, the King James Version, and then in many other versions, it was translated as something else, but the ESV has picked it up again. So if you've got an ESV, you'll come across it in several places. So for example, Romans 3.25 speaks about Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Or 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So there's the Bible saying, this is what the purpose of Jesus' death is. It's a propitiation for our sins. Now, straight away, uh, we realize that this jars with lots of contemporary ideas about God, the way that God is portrayed in, in uh, secular media, for example. They say that if there's a God at all, uh, we imagine him to be like a rather kind old grandfather who really wants the best for us. I remember hearing uh, someone describe lots of people's ideas of God as the, the cheerleader for the American dream. It was an American who said that. He's the cheerleader for the American dream. In other words, he just sort of stands at the sidelines of your life and he cheers you on as you work your way towards living your best life now. And God's saying, you go, boy, you go, girl. A number of years ago, you might remember that a, uh, an American denomination wanted to print the hymn that we love here, In Christ Alone. They wanted to print it in their hymn book, their newly formed hymn book. 
but they didn't like, like the line, for on the, Christ, for on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they wanted to change that to uh, the wrath of God was, or the, the love of God was magnified. Was the love of God magnified at the cross? Yes. But also the wrath of God was satisfied. And Keith and Kristen Getty uh, said no, because actually the Bible teaches this, and they wouldn't let them change it. Good for them. The Bible certainly tells us that, that God loves us. He loves the world, but also tells us that He is angry with us, that that word is wrath, and God's wrath is not like our flying off the handle that's inconsistent, that flares up. God's wrath is His settled, constant hostility against sin, and actually against sinners as well. Sometimes we, we hear people say, God... Uh, hates the sin and loves the sinner. That, that's, that's not in the Bible. There's lots of places where, where God's wrath is, is talked about in relation to the sinner. So, so God's wrath must be dealt with if we're to be right with him and is dealt with by Jesus on the cross. He is the, the sacrifice that, that turns away God's wrath because he's in our place and it falls on him rather than us. And of course, Jesus steps into that role willingly and knowingly. It's part of Christ's anguish in Gethsemane. God allows him in his human nature to see what lies ahead for him so that he goes to the cross in full agreement. We've used that illustration of the lightning conductor with the boys and girls. There's another illustration that if you've been around here for a while, you've heard me use, but if you're newer, you won't have. And I find it super helpful in thinking about the anger of God. The, the early American settlers, the illustration goes, had to cope with prairie fires. And the grasses could grow six feet high, and, and if they were set alight, maybe by, by lightning or something, they, they burned faster than, than a, a, a person could run, and faster than they could move with their, their wagons. But they faced that challenge with confidence because if they saw a fire, they would stand with their backs to the wind, and they would light a fire. And they would light a series of fires in front of them. And in a few moments, they had a large burnt area into which they could move. And they could confidently then await the oncoming fire. Because they knew that the fire would not burn in the same place twice. So you see, what happens on the cross is the fire of God's anger burns against my sin. And having burned there, it will not burn again. And so I can face God with confidence because Jesus has borne the wrath of God. On the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know what sort of week you have had don't know if you've got good news or bad news, but actually this is the best news, that we may face God with confidence because Jesus has taken our penalty. Last little phrase in a word, and redeems us, redeems us. This is a Bible word, of course, that we're maybe a little bit more familiar with. And if you think about it, this is a, a Bible word that speaks of what Jesus does on the cross, pointing towards us. So, so propitiation, God, Jesus dealing with God's wrath is, is something that, 
takes him uh, looking upwards, as it were, dealing with, with God, but redemption is something that looks towards us. He redeems us. So, it has that language of, of buying, of, of purchasing with a price. First Corinthians 6 and 20, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. We read at the beginning of our service, Revelation 5 and 9, you're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So, so the idea of redemption is the setting free of a prisoner, so there's our chains, the setting free of a prisoner or a slave and the paying of a price in order to do that. Some of you might remember the times whenever there were pawn shops around and if things were getting a bit tight towards the end of the, the month, you, you, you took your, your clock or your dog or something and you took it to the pawn shop and then you went back at the beginning of the month, you really shouldn't take your dog to the pawn shop, and then you came back and you, you, you bought it back again. And you, the, the price that you bought it back for was the redemption price. And this is what Jesus has done for us. Now, now uh, James Montgomery Boyce, really helped by him this week, uh, draws attention to the story of Hosea and his wife Gomer. And he calls it the best illustration, the biblical, best biblical illustration of redemption. Let me remind you of that story. Hosea was a prophet. He married a woman called Gomer, and she was dreadfully unfaithful to him. She fell into prostitution. She might have been a prostitute before he married her. And God had told Hosea that that, that would all happen, and it would be a picture. How he was going to ask Hosea to deal with Gomer was a picture, really, of, of how he dealt with his dreadfully unfaithful people, people like us. Gomer leaves Hosea, and she gets deeper and deeper into trouble and into debt, and she becomes a slave. And amazingly, God tells Hosea to go and buy her, to go and buy her back. He tells her, in other words, to redeem her. And, and Boyce helps us picture the scene. Uh, slaves were sold naked in the slave markets in those days. And we, you would imagine Hosea going there with all the shame involved in that. And, and others, it seems, are bidding for her. And Boyce gets us to imagine the prices creeping up for her. 14 pieces of silver. 15 pieces of silver. And another bidder chips in 15 pieces of silver and a, a homer of barley. And Hosea comes back, 15 pieces of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And there are no other bids. And so the Bible says in Hosea 3 and 3, so I bought her, Hosea speaking, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethek of barley. And then Hosea owns her. And in that culture, he could have done anything he wanted with her. He could have killed her but he rather clothes her. And he demands love from her even as he promises love to her. And Boyce says this, if we understand Hosea's story, we understand that we are the slave sold at the auction block of sin. 
We were created for intimate fellowship with God and for freedom, but we have disgraced ourselves by our unfaithfulness. We have flirted with and committed adultery with a sinful world and its values. The world has even bid for our souls, offering a, a money and fame and sex and power and all the other items in which it traffics. But Jesus, our faithful bridegroom and lover, entered the marketplace to buy us back. He bid his own blood. There's no higher bid than that. And he reclothed us, not in the wretched rags of our old unrighteousness, but in his new robes of righteousness. And he has said to us, you must dwell as mine. You shall not belong to another. So will I also be to you. Jesus takes our place. He propitiates God. He redeems us. And you see, we, we've been talking today about what the cross achieves and, and the things that happen there. And there's a sense in which they happen there independently of us. They're, they're there for us. But this should do some stuff to us, shouldn't it? It should melt us. We, we think of Jesus going to lay down his life for us, taking our place, bearing the awful weight of sin, soaking up the wrath of God so that it might not fall on you and me, and paying the price that we might be set free so that the world would not have us, but that he would. If you're here today, if you're listening today and you're a Christian, you've got to know that you're deeply loved. You're treasured by a God who would do this for you. And if you're not a Christian, let's think about this. What, what do you have to fear from a God like this? Sometimes people who aren't Christians, they think, you know what, I, I, I think I would like to become a Christian, but, but, you know, there's something in me that thinks that God's going to ruin my life. He's going to ask of me things that, that I just not, don't want to do. Do you think a God who does this is out to ruin your life? That he's out to get you? No, you cannot run to anyone better. So we finish the verse. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. I'm going to take a moment just to, to pray and to ask God to help us to appreciate what he's done for us. And then we're going to remember our brothers and sisters in other places too. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that we will be people who never stray far from the cross far from depending on it, far from being full of gratitude for it, far from allowing it to shape our lives and moments day by day. Thank you for Jesus' death on our behalf. Lord, we pray that you will be with your people across the world who shelter 
in the cross in what Jesus has done for them. We pray that you will strengthen them and help them. And Lord, we recognize that some of them are under immense pressure just now. We want to thank you for the work of Sat7 and the work of broadcasting Christian truth into these 25 countries in the Middle East that are challenging to reach in other areas, maybe at times nearly impossible. And yet we thank you too for the, for the amazing growth of the church in places like Iran, but also in places like Afghanistan. And Lord, we pray for that land. We pray for help for that land. And we pray especially for your church. For our brothers and sisters today, like Shaheen, who do not know what the future holds, who fear for themselves, for their families, for their wives and daughters especially. We pray, Lord, for those Christians who, who today on this Lord's Day will gather. We pray for those who, who cannot. We pray that you'll feed your people. We pray that you'll strengthen them. And Lord, we dare to pray that in the midst of this dreadful situation, your church will continue to grow and that you will bring glory to your name in that land. And we pray for ourselves. We know, Lord, that we need you. We remember those that we know who are in difficulty at the moment, those who are ill or those who are in hospital, those who are under pressure for one reason or another. And we pray for your church and we ask that you'll help us as we stand for you. We look at our brothers and sisters in other places. We realize that our courage is small. Our convictions seem tenuous. Lord, give us courage and faithfulness, we pray. We continue to commit our college to you. We thank you for new people starting to work there, for the team growing. And we pray especially for Alwyn as she would take up her role here shortly. May you continue to equip her for everything that is in front of her and use her in the lives of those who study there, we pray. Lord, hear our prayers today and receive our thanks. For we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.